when you eat protein, you can activate mTOR. However, it's been shown that it's not that like a pure protein diet would be the solution. Um, let's say you did like 90% protein and you still got enough of everything else that was vital. Whatever percent you can max out on protein, you would be getting diminished returns. It's better to have a more balanced composition of what activates mTOR so you don't build up resistance on one side. Because we find there's so many different ways to activate mTOR. But if you overburn one side, like imagine you can get triple the amount of mTOR activation if you balance out your diet as opposed to just doing only uh, protein only. This is what the diet industry likes to make you keep thinking that the more protein, the better. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body, Mind, Empowerment podcast. I'm your host, Seamlands, and our guest today is Omar Mokhtar. Omar is an MD PhD student at the Boston University in Molecular Medicine. He's published papers on treating lung cancer, cell disease, leptin, and mTOR. Omar, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sim. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you did contact me and we talked briefly about our kind of common interest in this fields of mTOR and uh, these other nutrient sensing pathways. But before we get into that, uh, why don't you give like a brief overview or a backstory about um, how did you get involved with uh, science, science research? Sure. So I was, um, so I joined the MDPHD program about eight years ago. And um, I actually, when I joined, I didn't have much of an interest working with, uh, you know, in diabetes and obesity. Uh, I was actually interested in doing nanomedicine. Mm -hmm. So when I first started my PhD program, I was looking for a nanobiology lab. And things didn't work out there, uh, unfortunately. But I, when I was in trying to find a new lab to jump into, I found this lab that was in diabetes and obesity. So I, I joined, um, I joined them, and has because I was looking for something to jump into, and I ended up liking it a lot. And it was coming at an interesting time when I was also struggling with weight loss, mm -hmm. uh, and I was trying to research on diet. So around the same time, I was trying to figure out what diet worked best for me was when I was joining a lab that was studying obesity and diabetes. So I, this, the knowledge I gained from that really fueled uh, my passion to learn more about uh, proper dieting techniques and you know, uh, even applying some of those concepts which are controversial into my own scientific practice mm -hmm. uh, because of the need for science to clarify what's going on there. So that's how I essentially got onto the, uh, the project which I, became my thesis which was a leptin project because I was uh, convinced from a lot of things I've researched prior that there is, a, there is a way to regulate feeding that we haven't figured out yet. And then I realized that no one ever figured out the, the true mechanism of leptin. Mm -hmm. um, what, from, from its discovery, now everyone will tell you, every scientist will say, you know, like we, we've figured out what leptin was a long time ago and it just didn't work, work out because they tried it as a, on a, as a clinical trial as a weight loss drug. But I, uh, I found that really silly because it was, a, it was not intended to be a way to understand the, the, the hormone further. It was just they immediately went to like a, a kind of like a cash grab and just tried to give it to people as much as possible. Uh, it didn't work out because you get something called leptin resistance, which is when your brain just says, like, I'm not buying it. Like, I'm not buying that you're telling me you're full. Like, I don't believe this. Yeah. Can, it, you, can what, you maybe give a brief uh, overview about what is leptin as well? for somebody? Oh, sure. Yeah. So to give you a brief overview of that, leptin is uh, what we call the satiety hormone. So what happens is whenever you eat a meal, 
um, you would have you would have a spike of insulin. Uh, that that's how your body deals with the, the glucose that goes around. It's also the triggering mechanism of a of a pathway we call mTOR. Mm-hmm. And mTOR is is in an essential basic uh, explanation. It's the growth pathway. It's it's it basically helps with biogenesis. It helps the mitochondria to grow. And in fat cells specifically, it does two things that we now know. It makes uh, leptin, which is the hormone that would go to the brain mm-hmm. and tell you you're full uh, through a, you know, a complex mechanism. And then the other path would be to suppress lipolysis, which is the breakdown of fat. Now, the reason why that would happen would be because once you've just eaten, you have fuel already ready to go. This is the most bioavailable fuel. So your body does not want to waste energy to do lipolysis because it is energy cons- uh, consuming. Mm-hmm. So it would shut off. It's like, imagine that's a factory. It would shut off that factory, which is the fat burning factory. And it'll turn on the glucose utilization pathway because that is now what's readily available. Let's go eat it up. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the, yeah, go ahead. So in a sense that, uh, the mechanism of that stimulates mTOR will also lead to the activation of leptin. Yes. So that, that was, Never that was not established hmm. prior. No one made no one has made the connection between the mTOR uh, with leptin. They, they knew insulin triggered leptin. They knew it helped release leptin into what we call like these secretory vesicles, which like imagine like little tiny balls that are just waiting at the bottom of the cell, mm-hmm. like they're like at the bottom of the membrane of the cell. And there's this, they, leptin has its own special vesicle. So it, other things usually come in combination, but leptin has its own unique type. Like it has a, its own profile of uh, lipoprotein density, which is a way we can identify it. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because the, all the other ones in the in adipose tissue, they, you can't tell them apart very well. So leptin is clearly distinguishable. So there's something unique about this hormone, uh, or as we call it, like adipokine. That's a, basically a, the fat hormone. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so we have we have never made that connection of the mechanism of how does leptin get made. We just know that insulin will release it. So that, that was the, that was the right. question that I sought out to ask in my thesis. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's uh, you, you, like you mentioned that uh, mTOR is the growth pathway and uh, it also promotes the growth of, or let's say the release of leptin in this sense then. Correct. Right, right. But what we like the things that uh, uh, promote the release of mTOR as well in this context. What would activate mTOR, you mean? Yeah. Okay, so mTOR is activated by quite a few factors, actually. So we got, we have actually a a amino acid response that can do that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Common ones, like the most common one is like arginine. Leucine has also been shown to activate. So those are more of like the branch chain amino acids. That's kind of one of the reasons why at the supermarket or at GNC, whatever, you'll, you'll have BCAAs. That's the reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right. Um, you also have um, insulin and, and, additional, and other growth factors that would do like IGF-1. So that also is another uh, response. And there have been some things that show around with uh, glucose as well, like sugar itself can activate to some, to some degree. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's mTOR is yeah, definitely found, uh, or <laughs> mTOR is activated by these foods that are richer in uh, amino acids and as well as glucose and insulin as well. So it's, it's, it could it be that uh, that's also part of the reason why uh, higher protein diets tend to cause more satiety, that they stimulate mTOR, but at the same time, they will also increase leptin, which will uh, promote satiety in the person. 
Correct. Um, yeah. So when when you eat a, a protein, when you eat protein, you can activate mTOR. However, it's been shown that it's not that like a pure protein diet would be the solution. Um, and I mean, even if you had like, let's say you did like 90% protein and you still got enough of everything else that was vital. Uh, so w sorry, whatever percent you can max out on protein, you, you wouldn't, you would be getting diminished returns. Mm -hmm. It's better to have a more balanced composition of what activates mTOR. So you don't build up resistance on one side because mm -hmm. we find there's so many different ways to activate mTOR. But if you overburn one side, like imagine you can get triple the amount of mTOR activation if you balance out your diet as opposed to just doing only uh, protein only. Mm. Even though we like to think, yeah. and this is what the diet industry likes to make you keep thinking that the more protein, the better. Mm. Yeah, right? yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it's a good point that you brought up that uh, the, the, there are several aspects that, uh, or several things that uh, release or activate mTOR and if you only get one aspect of it activated, such as eating a bunch of protein, then you're still not then you're still not going to uh, have like a increasingly significantly increased you know uh, release of mTOR, so to say. It's going to mm -hmm. be tapped off because you're only stimulating mTOR through one pathway, which would in this example would be just protein, so to say. But if you add the other pathways like carbohydrates and insulin as well into the mix then you're still going to end up with a net, net higher level of mTOR because you have like all the other factors also covered versus having them on just uh, like coming from a one single source that simulates mTOR, if that makes sense. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. And, and that, that is actually the reason why like when I first found your channel, uh, my brother introduced it to me. I have to give a shout out to Ryan because he introduced <laughs> it to me. Uh, he, he, you know, he saw you, I think, when you were under... 10,000 followers. So yes. this is when you were just starting and he literally, he said to me, he's like, you have to follow this guy because he's going to be, he's going to be big. And I was like, all right. And then I noticed that for a YouTube channel, the fact that you can reference mTOR pathway, it, I was, I was stunned. I was so stunned. I'm like, wow. Uh, did you, did you ever like get, like, what is your education background? Uh, well, I, I have like a bachelor's in anthropology, but uh, okay. It's it's like a human humanitarian <laughs> field, yeah. so it's not uh, biochemistry. No, but you still you still do the type of research that we would do. Right. But instead of doing science experiments, you're doing more literature searching, which is still like you have to have a hypothesis. You need to like go find some data. You need to prove a point at right. the end. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Coming coming back to the emptor, like, sure. Uh, could it be also that uh, this? Uh, that you know, if you are eating, you know, it's the way this mTOR is going to be expressed. Uh, it will also be re relevant to the other macronutrients and the, what kind of a diet you follow. So they say that mTOR activation will be completely different on a low-carb diet versus, quote-unquote, a balanced diet versus also like a low-protein, high-carb vegan diet, so to say, that they're all going to stimulate mTOR in a different way and in different amounts. Yeah, so what... Um, to, I, I, I will, I'd like to tie in, like, I'll tie in mTOR to like general dieting of like how, how people view dieting these days. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we've had diet trends that always occur. It, it, this is not uncommon, you know, like it, since, since like, since we started having the industrial revolution, like, and food was in excess, we would have to die. That's when diets became a thing. So, uh, at least a fad. And we would see that the reason why people lose weight initially on this new fad diet is because they were eating like crappy food before. And then they're just not eating crappy food anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
for example, like if you're eating burgers and pizza all the time and then this diet says like, just don't eat any meat. Like, yeah, that is, that's going to help a lot because not because the meat is gone per se, but because that meat you probably ate was like super processed. It was, you know, deep fried, you know, it was right. battered. It was like teriyaki glaze, like sugary glaze, like so glycosylations, you name it. Right. Um, but you stop eating that. And since you're eating super healthy vegan, you really try hard. So you're going to go really healthy at the beginning because you want to lose weight. And like the first like month or two, you're going to lose weight. And then you start facing like the, the consequences of that diet at that point. Like every diet has that. Like even the keto diet, I, I can describe some downsides. I feel personally that when I start supplementing with a little bit of carbohydrates, those go away for a bit. So like every diet has those side effects. Um, and mTOR, I think, is partly responsible for that. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, like um, we, we, know, we know, and I'm, I'm sure like a lot of people who are vegans would get upset at this, but you know, muscle growth is probably easier when you eat meat. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, I, I don't, I mean, from the concept I just gave you, the more mTOR activation from different sources, the more of an effect you'll have. Now, so if you're not, if you're not doing it, if you're not activating mTOR on the, on the, the protein method, that won't work. And the, the honest truth is that although vegans can claim they can eat protein, the bioavailability and the uh, density of the protein in meat is just more, is more, uh, you know, it's, it's higher density. Mm -hmm. So you're going to eat more of it and you can, you won't feel as full. And you want to put as much resources and energy into digesting, which is going to make you lose weight. Because that's, yeah. I think, I think like it would be that the combination of both like animal protein and carbs will be the best kind of combination for building. Or it's the, you, you will uh, tap off with mTOR the highest. You will uh, stimulate mTOR the most because the insulin and the amino acid combo is going to uh, raise the anabolism much higher. Than, yes. if you were, than if you were to do them separately, so to say, than if you yes. were to do them on a low-protein, high-carb diet or on the opposite, a low-carb, high-protein diet, so to say. So that there are different like, levers that stimulate or control the nutrient status and anabolism. So there are like, carbs and protein, but if you keep them separate, then the overall anabolic response will be lower than if you were to combine them together. So that's why the, kinda, the balanced diet is actually the most <laughs> anabolic diet because you're getting both yeah. the amino acids and carbs. Uh, to add to that though, there is, there is one thing that, um, I think some people, when they like, when they design like diets for muscle growth, for example, uh, they forget that fat can play fat in addition to that plays a good role, not in the way you would think, because we all know that when we eat something that's a little bit more fattier, mm -hmm. we want to eat more of it. Right. And sometimes you want to like, I know, obviously like, obviously most people want to lose weight, but if you were trying to gain muscle having a bit of fat, having some fat in it as well. It's just something that will like make your brain want to eat more. So mm. then you will, if you're having trouble putting down excess calories, like I wish I had that problem, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, if that was a thing, like, yeah, consuming fat would be a nice way of like buffering out that leptin response, uh, a little bit so that you still want to eat more because mm. if you keep on stimulating mTOR, you're going to make more leptin. You'll, you'll feel full. You'll hit a wall faster. So the, so the fat, if you combine the fat, then uh, it will blunt the leptin response or well, lower what, it's, it's more, I'm more saying it as like when it comes to the, uh, the pathways of like taste and stuff going to the brain will want to be, it will stimulate your appetite more. Like that, that's why like junk food has the right ratio of salt, sugar, carb, fat. It's all meant to make you eat more. Like it, it's, a, 
it's weird to think that you can eat a whole bag of chips, which has like thousands of calories and still be hungry for like more. So, and, and that's mostly due to like the design of that perfect balance of activating like all the pleasure centers to make you want to continue eating, even though the carbs would activate M mTOR. And then, you know, you, you, you still get a good response because that's going to trigger insulin, which is the, one of the strongest activators of mTOR. Mm -hmm. But you, that, but that leptin response isn't going to do much because you are, it's bypassing. It's like the brain's like, I don't care. I don't care. It's too good. <laughs> what, yeah. what, what do you think it is that is causing this sort of a hedonic uh, response? Oh, um, I, I think, I think it all stems in why do, why do we design junk food the way we do? Because if you think about, um, how junk food is designed, it's everything goes into it. Like it's not just the taste, it's the texture, it's the mouth feel, it's the consistency. Uh, the, these, these companies, they design these things to be, to sell off the, you know, the shelves. Like they are supposed to be addicting. Like that's the whole point. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like, I, I don't, I don't like that that's being done, but like, I'm, I understand why it's being done. Like if you're trying to make money off junk food. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So we have like on the, on the taste buds, we, we have basically, you know, you know, they can all be stimulated and they can be blunted. But when you provide a combination of like something salty and sweet and fatty and carb, it keeps confusing it. So you don't get that layer of like, Oh, I'm bored of this taste. Right. Like, like, you know, uh, I, I, if I were to open a bag of chips, like, yeah, like I said, like I can eat the whole thing. Like nothing will stop me. It's just mm -hmm. so addicting. And I think a lot of people suffer from that too. Not realizing that, you know, may, they may think like, Oh, I'm just going to stack some chips like throughout the evening. The problem mm -hmm. has been like the timing of eating is really what is the problem of uh, obesity. It's that you're grazing the entire time. Now, like, you know, on your channel, you talk about intermittent fasting. For example, I, I practice it too. I've, I've experimented. I've done long fasts. I've done short fasts. I, you know, and I, I love it. Like it's a great, it's a great like lifestyle in terms of, in terms of getting things done and being energetic. Mm -hmm. But to someone who is grazing, um, you are constantly activating insulin throughout, throughout the day. You know, um, people who intermittent fast might activate it once or twice, maybe three times uh, during the day because they have a short window to eat. The people who are who start breakfast and like they're just eating like you know instead of saying oh I won't have lunch and I'll have a small dinner but like if they're eating a snack the entire work day like it, you might as well have just eaten like a big lunch and a big dinner because that was a better option for you in terms of absorbing nutrition because you're eating something with low nutrition that's been like you know tons of hydrogenated oils tons of uh, tons of salt which is gonna make you want to you know drink and most people. Not many people drink as much water as they should. They're probably going to drink like a juice or a soda or whatnot. Mm. Um, so it's just adding more and more like calories to them. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's simply the person they they gain the weight or they become diabetic. Yeah, just because they eat too much and too frequently, and they don't feel like satiated, so to say. So they they can't stop themselves from doing it. Yeah. yeah. I I honestly think um, when it comes when it comes to that stimulation. Of, uh, of insulin, like these these people who are becoming diabetics now. Uh, yes, there are the ones who are super overweight, but there also are people who like look quite normal. Like they look like their BMI is like under thirty, over twenty five. So they're overweight, but they're not like they're not what we would classify as like a, you know, a diabetic's body mm -hmm. per se. Like once you're really reaching obesity, like it's like oh you have to watch out. Um, and I think that's because of people's eating habits sometimes. Mm -hmm. So. Like I said, the, the constant insulin stimulus is going to keep putting pressure on the pancreas. And um, 
just like every organ, like if it doesn't get enough, it doesn't get enough rest, which is like, that's like one of the benefits of intermittent fasting that we don't talk about too much. That the mm. organ needs like some time to chill so it can like regenerate, remake, uh, you know, these, the, all the compounds it needs to do to get the job done. So it can be ready for the next bout, the, the mm. next event, you know? Mm-hmm. So when you constantly eat junk food throughout the day, it doesn't matter if you ate 2000 calories. I don't care. You, <laughs> you, you hurt your pancreas more. You won't, you probably look thin, but you'll still be just as diabetic as anyone else. Mm. Does, but does in this example, like, um, uh, does insulin also promote satiety by stimulating leptin or some, something, or is it more important that you get the mTOR stimulation? Okay. So, so, it, so insulin works on mTOR. Mm-hmm. So that they, they, they share the same uh, path when it comes to uh, with like with leptin and suppressing lipolysis with, uh, you know, the, with right. the protein ATGL. Now, so what my what my research uh, was doing was focusing on the the pathway of how does insulin tell the fat cell to make more leptin over time? Like, how does that happen? No one's figured that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, people know leptin's there and it's gone. So what, I, what the paper I published was working on was finding the mechanism of leptin. Mm. So we find out that uh, you know, in, in my lab where we worked in, we, we discovered the link between another interesting protein, which was EGR1, which would suppress ATGL. Uh, so EGR1 is early growth response number one, and ATGL is adipose triglyceride lipase. This is the, uh, this is the um, bottleneck enzyme for uh, lipolysis mm-hmm. so when you activate atgl it's going to open the floodgates and then hsl would work as well but hsl is not the, it's like it's waiting for atgl's activation because it needs the first uh it needs the first fatty acid link removed which is what atgl does it initiates the process so egr1 suppresses that pathway so that's what we discovered the this is how lipolysis is suppressed when insulin comes in mm-hmm. okay so I decided to, to question, does EGR1 do this on other proteins? So I focused on leptin. So we, we genetically engineered um, what we call luciferase vector. That, that's essentially a, a, a DNA. It's bacterial DNA, so it's, it's circular. And we insert uh, the promoter of leptin. So that's, that's, the, that's the part where you know, different proteins would go and latch on and stimulate where to turn on or turn off leptin production. So just think of it as like a bunch of buttons being pressed. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. double, double the production, like, you know, have it, like stop entirely. Like that's what, that's what those do, those proteins. Okay. So we rate, so EGR1 would, uh, would go on uh, the promoter of ATGL, for example, and it would stop it completely. It's like, you know, turn off the factory. We're done. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see, does EGR1 go on the promoter of leptin and do something similar? Okay. Cause no one, no one has looked into that. Um, and we found out that it activates it. The same protein that stops lipolysis also turns on leptin production. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, leptin has already been released by this time from the, from the insulin secretion. Cause I right. told you there's these vesicles that just, they're waiting beneath the membrane ready to go. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what, that's the leptin spike you see, uh, four hours after a meal. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's that, you know, that's that big jump that occurs. Oh, sorry, not four hours. I, I, I take that back. That, that's what happens after, right after a meal when you get the leptin that goes up the blood. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I'm not questioning that. I want to know what does the body do the next time it eats? That's the question. So, right. so we just ate. 
and maybe we ate too much. How does the, how does the fat adjust to this over many meals of overeating? Because it doesn't happen overnight that you make more leptin. It's a process. So this process was that EGR1 would produce leptin. So it interferes with transcription, which is how much of the, um, how much like code it's going to make from this, the source, which is the DNA. So it makes the mRNA, mm-hmm. and then that would be translated into leptin protein, okay? Mm. So you're seeing here that transcription, what it does is that it's kind of like as a way as like reloading the ammunition again, okay? So you can see that the more times I eat, which is going to turn on insulin more often, the more times EGR1 is going to tell leptin, make more, make more, make more. Over time, it's just going to realize, like, it's just, just make as much as you can. Like, just make it all. Like, I don't care. Like, I, there's, no, there's no more gears. There's no dial. It's just 100%. Mm-hmm. You know, just keep making 100%. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. That's why people have what we call hyperleptinemia, mm-hmm. which is high circulating leptin in their blood. And that leptin doesn't work. Right. Like, so it, it, it doesn't matter. So yeah. it's like the more frequently you stimulate leptin, and the more frequently you stimulate insulin and such, then you will eventually become leptin resistant or... Yes. Right. Yes. And this, this is a common thing we see like in the clinic. Um, people don't pay much attention to the high insulin and the high leptin in the blood. They're focusing on the glucose, the HB1C, which I agree, HbA1c is a very good marker because you want to see, uh, for those who don't know, the hemoglobin HB1C is the glycosylation portion of the blood protein, which is caused only by sugar. Mm-hmm. So that, that means that while as sugar is staying in the blood where it should not be, like sugar needs to be at a certain level, which is buffered. If it goes up, it's going to be damaging. And one of those damaging things is it glycosylates the hemoglobin. So that's how doctors would see the progress of your health as, uh, as your diabetes. Is it getting worse or is it getting better? So they want to always target that number. And then glucose, of course, is like the number to see like, are you keeping your blood sugar in check? But insulin is something that I, I don't think is studied as much as well as like with leptin because those are markers, I think, of how the fat and the pancreas are thinking. Mm. Like those are, those are better regulations mm. of what's going on because it doesn't make sense why you should have high circling insulin if a diabetic is taking insulin mm-hmm. because it should have been there and it's gone. It just degrades over time. So there's something wrong that there's nothing being degraded or the pancreas still keeps making something that's not working. And that's, those are the questions that you know, I feel like uh, science kind of falls short on. They don't want to address these questions just yet. Yeah, yeah it's, it is. Uh, just measuring the blood glucose can be, or the he- hemoglobin A1C can be like somewhat misleading because it's, it's only telling you what kind of fuel substrates are in the bloodstream at that moment, but it doesn't tell you like the overall energy balance or the energy status, uh, which are regulated by insulin and the balance between uh, mTOR and other pathways. Yeah, and you can see that with like with you know people who are taking like insulin diabetics, like they're not they're not getting thinner, which is what you would expect because you know, oh we we're controlling your HbA1c, that means there's less sugar, which means you're not going to be storing as much fat, which means you should be using more fat, but it doesn't, it's not the case. Like mm-hmm. because insulin activates the same pathway that says stop stop breaking down fat, <laughs> so these people are getting fatter every single time. And right. I wanna I wanna help that. Like, that. That's why that's why when I joined the field, I was like, wow, this is great work because I think a lot of people are misled on how we can treat diabetes. Mm-hmm. I think it's they're focusing more on like a drug approach, which we're now seeing is 
that only helps one side of the problem, but all the other sides are getting, they're now getting, they have to carry the burden. So they get even worse. Right. Mm. How, how does, how do these uh, diets like the keto diet or some low carb diets, how do they fit into this? The, given that they keep your basal insulin kind of somewhat lower and suppressed. Yeah. So that, that is actually uh, great. It is a great question. So uh, I'll just focus on in general, like the ketogenic diet. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll use, I'll use that for now. And then we, we can talk about more sub diets of the ketogenic diet if you want. So feel free to ask me that, but the, the keto diet, what it does, the reason why it works so good is that fat does not activate insulin that well. Mm-hmm. And because of that, your body likes is staying in a state where, you know, after you've gone over to keto flu, you're fat adapted which means that your body now uses fat predominantly as an energy source. And it makes glucose as well through other pathways. Uh, that, that's what we call gluconeogenesis, which the liver does predominantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this state, your insulin's down. That means that your leptin is what we call sensitive now. That means it's like it's waiting for that right moment to activate. And you, you, never, you never quite do to the degree as you did when you would eat like a normal uh, Western diet. Mm-hmm. So you initially would probably be hungry, but the beautiful thing is that fat consumption is the most satiating thing. Like as if it was already programmed in the, in the system. It's like, I know we're not going to activate love and it's okay. We're just going to feed you so much that you, you're like able to, I don't know about you seeing, but like I can eat more on a keto diet and still lose weight. And that to me makes me feel happier because I, I could not handle small portions when I was dieting mm-hmm. before. Yeah. But are the calories still the same or just the portion sizes? Sorry, say again. Are the calories still the same and you're still able to lose weight or uh, do you simply feel more satiated from like increased portion sizes or? I mean, if I were to control, like I'm saying if I controlled them calorically, if they're above 2000 calories, I would be less miserable on a keto diet because I feel like I ate more food. Okay. Oh, this is what you like, mean. I'm t- I'm talking, we're talking about pure volume and satiety. Mm. Uh, energy, energy is energy. Like at the end of the day, yeah. your body breaks it down for energy. And, you know, those numbers that they tell you, those are the net numbers. So that means after the work put in and after the work that you get out of it, that's the, that's the profit. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it does put calories in versus calories out into like a more bigger perspective and context, so to say, because there is like a huge difference in how you feel and how your body composition ends up being. If you eat like 2000 calories of pure sugar or 2000 calories of a well-balanced diet or 2000 calories of some just vegetables or 2000 calories of uh, like a keto diet. So all of them regulate the satiety and leptin signaling all of them differently. So yeah, it's very, you know, calories are calories, but how you feel and how well are you going to able to stick to it and how sustainable the diet is, that's going to be very much determined by the macro ratios and uh, how those macro ratios affect your satiety signaling. Yeah. I, I feel like my, my one, Here's my one thing with the keto diet that, that bothers me. It's not the diet per se. It's how some people push it to the extreme. Right. That makes no sense to me because I've seen like, you know, people like they're, they're just struggling to like put fat in their body. And then so they're like, they're trying to, you know, they make, they make a bunch of like, uh, like they make too much keto bombs. Like things are like artificial basically. Mm. Like things are not from a whole food. Um, so they end up like consuming these like fats that we don't know. They, they might have been processed. We, they might have been heated up too much. Like things that are still damaging to us. And they might have high omega-6 as opposed to omega-3, which, you know, we struggle to find that right ratio, which they tell us it's supposed to be one-to-one, believe it or not. And people say one-to-three, but 
that's like near impossible to get one to one unless you're only eating like chia seeds <laughs> personally. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, I'm afraid of the people who like consume too much fat because you kind of, it, it, it's like, it's still not too good. Like you do need other nutrients. Mm. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, that, that at the end of the day, like too much of that processed fat, like we don't know what it would do. Yeah. It, it's science, like, science doesn't study that stuff. Right. Like, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. It's like too much in excess is bad. So to say that, uh, too many of uh, simple sugars is going to be bad too much carbohydrates is going to be bad too much fat is also going to be bad even if it's on a keto diet and yeah right. like, it's 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 a matter of okay if my body you know the problem is that the kind of your body doesn't want to have excess energy in the bloodstream all the time because it's going to inhibit kind of the self-repair processes and it's also going to keep the body in this constant state of anabolism and growing and so to say so you always want to be maintaining somewhat of a you know energy restricted model or an energy restricted diet where you're not giving your body like overabundance of all the foods and calories and macros so to say and uh if you if you feel that you don't need to you know add extra fats to your food you're feeling already satiated then there's no there's not going to be like any reason to, to do it either the kind of the only side effect to that may be that you're going to lose some weight and uh, you will simply have to kind of you know balance it out afterwards but yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it shouldn't be like a mandatory thing to you know, try to aim for a specific ratio of, um, you know, fats or, uh, or other macros. Right. So like, instead of like, instead of like having like, uh, one of those keto snacks that are just like super processed, mm. just like add more butter to your last meal. Like <laughs> it cook with more butter. It's okay. Like, it's like, right. it's like, I feel, I don't know about you, Steve, but like, I feel like a lot of people still can't get over the whole, like, I have to eat more butter, which like they're, they're still overcoming that, like, message they got before as a kid which is like butter butter's bad for you don't eat fat low fat diet mm. like the psychological like have to you know overcome that i notice a lot of people when they start keto they still like you know have like one tablespoon of butter that they cook with i'm like no you can put like three it's okay <laughs> like that's the point of the diet <laughs> right 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 yeah well yeah. Uh, at the same time it's I, I i i myself think yeah like too much of anything can be bad so i i personally i would always be more cautious of anything like i wouldn't go overboard with the fat i'm not going to go overboard with carbs i'm not going to go overboard with the protein either so yeah right right it's a good thing <laughs> but but what do you think about uh you know there's there's a recent debate about uh the obesity what's what's called as obesity like some people think it's the brain some people think it's calories some people think it's uh insulin so where do you fall in this uh conversation yeah yeah so uh, you're you're referring to the uh the joe rogan podcast that happened recently yeah, with uh, well, yeah, yeah with, some people with some some of those people there, there Stephen Ganey and uh, Gary Tobbs, but there right. are other other people are also in the camp. Like if it fits your macros, it's all that matters. So, <laughs> what do you think about that? Yeah, so you know, um, there's I so I watched the podcast and uh, I found it very um, to to begin like it, it was their professionalism was really in jeopardy. Uh, when I, I expect when scientists debate that they only talk about the facts, um, the fact that both Gary and, and, uh, Stefan were not actually like going together, going through together on a paper and like debating claims on that. Mm -hmm. We already showed that it wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to reach a conclusion. Uh, I felt that they were, they were both kind of bitter. So, but to get into the science, cause that's, that's what I wanted them to get into. So, you know, I'll, I'll jump to that. I don't want to waste the time. So, uh, Gary had a fat centric model that the fat is what's regulating 
our uh, met- metabolism for obesity and diabetes. Like that's what's going wrong, which is what we call metabolic dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And then Stefan, has, he has the neurological model, which is that as we consume calories more and more, we are, our brain wants us to eat more and more. And then this is like, you know, the brain's regulating our obesity and stuff. And some of them are genetic, which we can't change. So that was like the, the claim he was, his, he was making. And a lot of people, yeah, I, I agree. Like if it fits your macros and stuff, they, they keep focusing on the caloric uh, consumption. And, you know, the thing is that a lot of old science focused on calories. And they always would show that a reduction in calories meant they would, the animals would lose weight. And they did in humans, and it does too. But we're not in the 1940s and 50s when, with, with, with the early stage of food development. We're now. Now we, they, they have got it down to an art of how to design junk food. So, um, in fact, I believe Stefan even discussed that. And I felt like that was a strange point to bring up for him because that's actually his Achilles heel, which is that exactly we've designed food to bypass the, uh, bypass the fat leptin production to go straight to the brain. It's like it's a Trojan horse method. Mm-hmm. You know, it's basically we have this really delicious food that has no nutrients in you because we know exactly what makes the dopamine turn on in your brain. Mm. So it, it's not the brain. Like it, it, it's tricking the brain. Like that's what the junk food does. And, and the fat is the one that actually saves the brain from the trick like, because the le- that's what leptin does. But there is, there's rarely any leptin uh, activation for the junk food. Uh, you, get a, you can get partial because of the carbs that would trigger the insulin. But when it comes to snack food, people aren't like, they're, they're grazing. So it's have like minimal mm. effects over time. And those minimal effects will damage the pancreas and will do that. So go, going back to their arguments, they brought up a mouse model which is the, it's the DBDB mouse. Um, it, it was like in the middle of the podcast and Stefan brought it up as a point he was trying to make that he said the DBDB mouse was obese and overweight and ate a bunch of food. The reason why is because DBDB mouse lacks the leptin receptor. What that means is that in the brain, there should be one that it, it, that's now gone. So when, when you make all this leptin that goes into the bloodstream, it doesn't, it doesn't have an effect. So if it doesn't have an effect, that means leptin does not say, I'm good, I'm full, stop eating. So what do you do? You keep eating, hence why the mice are overweight. Mm-hmm. The, um, so that's, that's the whole only point he made. And he said, see, it's the brain. But that's, that's not necessarily true because the, that study, which used DBDB mice, they also used a more, uh, a more chaotic, like primordial experiment, which is called parabiosis. This is when both mice... Uh, share a common blood supply. So they, they, they fuse together the blood supply. So what you would co- normally do is you have the DBDB mouse with the wild type mouse. Okay. They put them together with the parabiosis experiment and then they measure to see how does the wild type mouse, how is it affected from whatever this mutant mouse has? Cause they didn't know what leptin was back then. They knew there was something being made that made this mouse fat. So they didn't know, but now we know it's leptin. So when they parabiosed it, what happened was that the wild type mouse essentially shriveled up and, and died. Mm-hmm. The reason why was because the leptin being made by the DBDB mouse was in such excess and having no effect on the DBDB mouse, but when it goes into the bloodstream of the wild-type mouse, it has an extraordinary effect to the point where the mouse does not eat at all. It, will, it would rather starve to death than eat. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing that there's a communication pathway that occurs. It's not the brain is the regulator, and it's not that the fat is the sole regulator. It's a, it's a bi-directional uh, highway. 
And that, that's, what, that's what our lab is, is now, that's the direction we're going into. We're trying to understand that pathway. Like, like how does the brain tell, how does the brain communicate with fat depots? And how does the fat depots regulate back to the brain? Mm-hmm. So this is, this is where I felt like they dropped the ball because they didn't discuss that after all these parabiosing experiments, they find out that it's not really that the brain is in control per se. It's that the brain is just another part of the system that communicates and then adjusts behavior. Like if you, if you keep getting low leptin, then your brain's going to keep thinking, I'm hungry, I need to eat something right now. But that's just another feedback loop. It's not, it's not the prime regulator per se. Right. So both of them were right to a certain extent, but they... They were right as much as they were wrong. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's quite, quite interesting yeah, that you mentioned the Trojan horse effect of uh, processed food. And uh, it is true, so to say, that uh, the processed food with uh, high amounts of carbs and high amounts of fats, it will stimulate insulin and it will activate mTOR as well, which in theory should, you know, also increase leptin and uh, essentially shut down the feeding response, you know, sending the signal to your brain that you've had enough calories and you're satiated. But that doesn't really happen because most people, they get this dopamine rush from that food, which in turn is going to, you know, motivate their behavior to repeat it in the future because they, you know, they they, uh, experience this, you know, feeling of satisfaction and uh, a reward feeling and they get addicted to the dopamine rush, which will kind of make them follow that same pattern frequently. And that's going to lead to like frequent snacking and uh, frequent eating of these kind of junk food. There's one, there's one more player though, that makes it, makes it all come together. That's perfect. It's the pancreas. Mm. The pancreas is the one that I think gets the most bothered by how much you eat all the time, not the quantity, but how often you eat. Right. Okay. And the reason why is because every time you eat, you're going to activate insulin. Mm -hmm. That means the pancreas has to work hard again. Like every bite, like if you, if you're taking like a few bites of chips, for 30 minutes at a time, that means your pancreas has to turn on the whole engine again, do all the work, and then turn it off again and try its best to save up for next time. Okay? Mm-hmm. This is what's going to happen. You're, uh, this, is why this, this is why this disease works slowly. Like, I think the pancreas is what, what, why this happens. is because over the years, you start accumulating more and more. Like you eat more and more. Your brain is wired now to eat more of these processed foods, like more junk food. Mm-hmm. So then it's not just that the frequency is high. The quantity now starts to increase too. So the, the mm. pancreas is like, oh God, like I have to work more often and I have to work harder each time. Yeah. So it's, it's going to start failing. Like basically when you get, when you get diabetes is when, when, your, is when your pancreas goes on strike, basically. Mm. It's like, it's done. Like, it's like, I don't, I don't want to make this anymore. I, I can't make, it will not make enough for the demand anymore. So yeah. what happens is that that sugar now is in the bloodstream. And then also those insulin receptors, they have been damaged over time from all that burden of food, they get damaged. They get what we call insulin resistance. So that means mTOR can't be activated as good anymore, Mm. right? So if that happens, what does that mean? It means lipolysis occurs because it's not restricted anymore. So that means there's fat and blood in the bloodstream, Mm. right? And then the whole body goes crazy. What does it do during that time? One of them is it raises LDL because it's trying Mm. to clean up the mess that just got made. It's like an oil spill, basically, Mm. you know? So we used to think LDL was like, that's why we die. But it's not. It's, it's actually like, if you think, if you look back at all of it, it's the consumption of these foods that are designed to bypass the brain to make leptin not work, as, you know, not work efficiently that burdens the pancreas. And this causes the insulin resistance, which then 
leaks uh, it, it has the sugar lining the blood vessel as well as fat that's coming out of the wow. out of the fat tissue and wow. that's why you get liver disease that's why you get stroke that's why all those things happen mm. and that's why a lot of people are getting them too wow yeah it's that's an amazing uh, amazing uh, kind of overview about it and essentially it's it's both like a physiological response uh like in the face of insulin resistance that causes like uh, the accumulation of extra extra energy in the bloodstream uh but as but as well as like the psychological uh adaptation that enforces it so to say that the person why the reason the person starts to consume those things more frequently and in so doing spike insulin more frequently as well is because of this hedonic adaptation to the food so to say that you know, as you as as you're as you're getting used to more palatable food, then the the kind of limit or the threshold for satiety will also start to increase gradually all the time. So to say that if you're eating cake and ice cream every day, then your taste buds get used to it, and in order to feel you know fulfilled again and satisfied, you have to have like either more ice cream or do it more frequently. So to say, so you yeah. it's 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 the, it's the phenomenon of hedonic adaptation that. You know, the more exposed you are to a certain stimuli, the more resistant you become towards it. So you need more to get the same effect. And the same applies to, you know, dopamine from social media and uh, the insulin and everything else like sex, porn, and, uh, you yeah. know, watching, watching, over, watch, over watching stimulation. TV. Yeah, yeah. So it's quite, quite, <laughs> quite an amazing thing that intermittent fasting and like lower frequency of those stimulation is still the best thing for managing it and preventing it against it. Exactly, Seem. I mean, like, that's, I think everyone kind of realizes that a fast is not, it's like, we associate that with food, but mm. like, what is it when someone says, oh, I'm going to go off social media for like two weeks? Like, that's a fast too. It's a social mm. media fast. Mm. Like, that's another stimulus that uh, bothers a lot of people uh, over time. We all, we all do it. We all take these breaks. But what intermittent fasting has shown is that can't just take a break when it gets too much you need to know how to regulate and control it daily mm-hmm. and i think that's what intermittent fasting is it's it's more powerful than we think because it's the first step of us controlling our behavior something we used to think was uncontrollable because we were told by most of the neuro the neuro community that like that's us that's who you are like why you can't we can't change it that that was the, another point that what uh, Stefan was saying. That's like his. If you don't realize his end goal is basically saying the only way you can change this was drugs. Like that was his end goal. If you if you know, I, I'm I'm being honest because he's saying like, oh, you have these genes. And it's your. It's like it's not your fault. You're fat. And it's, well, it's like I used to think that when I was 270 pounds, and then I said I'm gonna stop thinking that and do something about it. And that's when I did all this dieting stuff. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's quite quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, these, you know, uh, fasting from these things. Uh, how would how would intermittent fasting then affect uh, the leptin resistance or insulin resistance? Yeah. So um, what happens is that the longer the period between your meal, the more your body has time to climatize and get ready. So it's what we call resensitization. Sorry, it's hard for me to pronounce that sometimes. <laughs> uh, so what that means is that all your receptors, they're like, everything's calibrating. You know, they're getting ready, they're getting primed because there's nothing, there's no more around the, uh, around the area. So it's like, where is it? They're getting, they're getting hungry for some, for some action, basically. Right. That's what fasting does. So your leptin levels go down, your insulin levels go down, and you're just ready for the next meal. 
which is the best thing you want to be because when you eat, you don't want to be laying around. You want to go immediately into your muscles. You want to go immediately into your fat tissue. You just want to go where it has to go. Mm-hmm. For, you know, that, that's it. So that's how the intermittent fasting really consolidates that because it puts you in control now. You eat what you want. And you know, I'm sure you've read the, the paper by Dr. Panda at the Salk Institute, which is the, the, he's honestly one of the best scientists in the world because he's actually doing intermittent fasting studies. <laughs> and he shows that even if he puts a cohort of people who get to eat whatever they want and people who can eat whatever they want during eight hour window, the, the eight hour window still loses weight mm. still because mm. they still have better regulation of their metabolism, mm-hmm. but they're not eating anything healthy. They're not eating a keto diet like you and I, mm. they're eating like junk food and they're still okay. Mm. Yeah. Even, even from my own experience, I, I can say that if you're eating the same amount of calories within either like three meals a day or two meals a day or like one meal a day then the kind of metabolic response as well as the you know fat loss or weight gain response is going to be significantly different and uh, you're not going to gain as much fat on a one meal a day sitting if you over consume a bunch of calories than if you would like on a three meals a day sitting because you're like spiking insulin more frequently as well yeah i i used to do one meal a day actually um I did it for a while. I really liked the benefits, uh, but I had an issue with putting down food. I mm. just could not eat that. I could not eat my uh, amount because I was trying to, you know, I was trying to gain weight, and I was just at that time, uh, and it just wasn't it wasn't working appropriately. Uh, so then I split it into, and I also I would suffer from like right side rib pain, mm. which usually is like you know that's like not the best because that could be you know, your gallbladder, or your liver. So mm-hmm. uh, I decided to split those meal that meal into two. And, I, and that, that works better for me now, as mm-hmm. well as like, I also lowered my protein intake a, a tad bit, like down to like 60 grams a day. And then I noticed that that made my liver feel much better. So mm-hmm. I've, I've had like liver issues like growing up. So mm-hmm. like, I'm just keeping that in check. But like for, to everyone, like there's no, there's no one size fits all. Yeah. Like everybody's mm-hmm. different. And like, you know, I, I still think that the number one uh, metabolism control that you can do is the intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. Now the meals and the diet, those are other things that I think is accustomed to everyone, but we can generally agree that there are things that you should definitely avoid on every diet, mm-hmm. like sh- excess sugar. Mm-hmm. Like no matter what, no matter what you do, sugar is, is like, not good. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. yeah it, it is true that everyone shouldn't or everyone don't have to uh, do one meal a day or something like that. The, you know, the, the main idea is to restrict the frequency, so to say, and still have less frequent meals and not feel obligated that you have to have like snacks all the time. And it's actually a good idea to stay in this fast state uh, for longer every day and uh, postpone the first like meals. Uh, but uh, the, you know, you mentioned that you had, st- you had trouble, uh, you know, consuming that food. What, what, is, what is someone who is, you know, doing these sort of fasts, then sometimes they may come across this sort of a binge eating uh, response that, okay, I've been fasting for so long and now I'm going to eat all this food and, and, and I can't control myself anymore. Like, does, does this, co- that, could it be that then fasting causes some form of leptin resistance? So I, I see that that is, that is all in the head. Mm. Um, fasting really accompanies really strongly, I think, with meditation because you need to know how to control yourself. Fasting is that period of time when you reflect more. That's when, you, that's when you're working, you're more focused. Like you're not just thinking about, I'm hungry, what am I gonna eat? It's like your, your, your mind's quieter and, fa- mm-hmm. and meditation helps you achieve that. So even when you break your fast, 
you're not gorging yourself <laughs> because you don't want to you don't want to cause the overstimulus of uh like of the stomach as well like that's how that's how we can you know, we can eventually get ruptures um <laughs> it might be it might be too burdening on your microbiota to get that much food at once uh and worst case scenario like you know if that food was say poisoned or whatever like you're just basically going to be asking for trouble because you have a fasted body that's going to take on a huge burn. So I'm not saying that's going to happen to people, but like, you know, you need to really keep in mind, like I used to have the same problem and both my brothers have the same problem too. Like after they break a fast, like even now I'm not talking like a multi-day fast. Cause I, I mm-hmm. found out that after a three day fast, I don't want to eat the next day when I break it. I have, I have bone broth and like maybe some salad. And like, I'm like, I don't want to eat anymore. I just can't. Mm-hmm. But like a breaking like a one day fast, two day fast or something, yeah, like we would we would tend to overeat, and I just realized you know I feel like I feel like crap afterwards, so I'm just gonna stop doing it. <laughs> so I I would just tell for most people it's like you know try some like try some like meditation, like try some mm-hmm. things to calm the body, so you realize like you know yes you're hungry, it's okay, and you'll 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 replenish. And besides, you have like you have fat, like you I mean you're really not gonna die. Like I'm not worried about like I know there are anorexics out there and stuff. And my heart goes out to them. But like most people who are doing these fastings right now, like the majority of them now are like people who are trying to lose body weight. Mm-hmm. So you can, you know, you don't have to like gorge yourself. Like, you know, have a little bit, like break it, break with something you actually haven't had in a while. Like if you're on a keto, break it with fruit just to enjoy it for what it is. <laughs> you're not going to gain weight from eating that one piece of fruit. So just like mm-hmm. enjoy that moment because you don't get it all the time. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I, that's what I do now um yeah that's how i break my fasts yeah 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 it, it is true that uh, a lot of it is you know mental the idea of uh, gorging after breaking the fast and you know one of the best things about fasting is that you you will uh, start to need less food as well because uh, like first of all your gut will shrink a little bit like this the uh, the size of your stomach you, you mm-hmm. won't be able to eat that much food and that's that's actually a good thing because you will be first of all you will be able to practice like more caloric restriction from that and you will you know maintain a stable body weight more easily so to say that you don't want to eat ex- extra food just for the sake of putting it into your mouth and uh, the second thing that is also that um one of the reasons why this uh, binge eating may happen is also like part of the uh, lack of electrolytes that uh, you may experience during the fast. So to say that it's called the refeeding syndrome where mm-hmm. essentially after you break a fast and you spike your insulin, then that, that insulin may also shuttle uh, some of the electrolytes and minerals in your bloodstream and it's going to shuttle them into the cells. So that's going to leave the cell, it's going to leave the bloodstream somewhat depleted of those uh, electrolytes and uh, that's going to make you more cravings it's going to create the cravings and uh, makes you hungrier than you actually were because you do, you're kind of depleted from those minerals but if you keep your bloodstream somewhat uh, full and uh, have higher levels of electrolytes in there by you know i don't know consuming some salted water or something during the fast then you also uh, prevent the refeeding syndrome because you have like plenty of uh, electrolytes yeah i what i do is i actually on a day i'm like on a day I'm gonna break my fast, um, I make like I have like I have bone broth. Uh, it's bone broth, apple cider vinegar, some turmeric, mm-hmm. and if I have spirulina, I'll add spirulina. I usually don't. Uh, and I just like I, and, and I had some hot water too that I would add. So I make it into like a soup. Right. And I would just like drink that soup. <laughs> and and I, I also put nutritional yeast, so I get all the B vitamins. So mm-hmm. I'm basically like, giving myself a meal with like very little calories. And I still, I still consider that breaking my fast because I think the bone broth has like 10 calories. So like, 
to people who are like, Oh, is that, is that going to break your fast? Like, yes, it is. But like, not like the minute I walk like a hundred steps, I'm, I'm back, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I drink that and that's a way for me to prime my stomach with the, uh, the apple cider vinegar. It's a way to give myself a, a good source of energies from the nutritional use in the spirulina. And the bone broth gives me like a lot of some of those electrolytes back. Mm-hmm. So I, it just, it, it basically makes me feel good. And I, I drink that before I go do like an hour or two of kickboxing. Mm. And that's like, that's following like a 24 hour fast basically. Yeah. Uh, so I know I'm usually fine with, with that. So yeah. I, I like that. And I agree. Like maybe don't break your fast with, with big food. Mm. Like yeah. keep it, keep your first meal, always keep your first meal small, breaking it fast. Just, you know, just do it, do it for the, don't see it as a food. Just see it as like something for energy. Like give yourself the energy. Then you can eat the bigger meal later. Yeah, it's it's true. Yeah, you're gonna first of all you're gonna get the electrolytes, but also if you if you break your fast with a smaller bit of food, then uh, you will essentially also stimulate or you will increase leptin uh, much faster as well with that. And you don't have to have like a big meal to uh, increase your satiety and send a signal to your brain that you actually are nourished. So you will be satiated from less much quicker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, see, I I actually had a question for you with like diets. Like you said, you you practice refeeding. Uh, like you you carb cycling correct uh yeah yeah and uh yes i do maybe uh once once a week or once every other week or something okay okay um i i've been i don't know there's this video that thomas delara released out where it's a it's like a refeed uh regiment that he does on this days he's fasting instead Mm -hmm. of fasting he'll eat this meal post-workout and i've tried it recently and it's like fantastic like i think his video came out like a week or two ago I've been doing it only for like two weeks, but uh, basically you would eat like a small bit of glucose, a small bit of fructose, salt, and a source of omega-3 and a very little protein. Like we're talking about maybe 500 calories. So it's kind of similar to like a fasting mimicking diet. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing that as my post-workout when I go exercise. And within an hour or two, you feel, you feel like you kind of revert back to how you did when you were fasting. Like mm-hmm. you, you, you kind of still feel hungry again. Because the idea is that it's activating all the glucose uptake pathways right. in your muscles. That it just all goes in because you have fructose pathways, you have glucose pathways that require salt. Omega threes help with the process, and the protein activates the mTOR so it can go initiate growth. There's like a nice little meal that you can still eat and still get the effects of fasting, for like a partial response. Like maybe like you get eighty percent of the benefits of autophagy mm-hmm. as opposed right. to hundred percent. So, so would you eat something after that small meal as well, or? No, that would be the only thing I eat. Like oh, so, th- th- that's like that's not even. Okay. I, I wouldn't consider like food. Like that's like a supplement, mm. but it's, it's food. I mean, food, but it's a supplement in my body after a workout. It's like a post-workout recovery. Meal. Right. So, so that's you. You consume that, and then you continue fasting, or yeah. So I, I would just consume that, and then the next day, like uh, once I tried it, the next day my performance doing weightlifting Im- improved because I have glycogen now, mm. and that's right. the, that you know I'm able to trigger more more uh, muscle growth with that method. Um, and then, like, I, although I would still break my fast after that, wor- that, that workout, um, just the fact that that performance while fast, semi-fasted was way better than I've had before when I'm fully fasted. It's just like, well, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Like, I want to lose fat and gain muscle at the same time. And I think that's one of the ways we can do it these days. Right. Well, uh, it, 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 it makes sense in the sense that uh, if you spike your insulin very high, uh, like in a brief setting, in a very small time window, and you kind of re- you uh, refill their glycogen with the insulin very fast as well. Then 
the drop in insulin will also be somewhat faster, so to say. Exactly. You're going to spike it really high and you're going to drop, which essentially lowers your blood sugar again and lowers your insulin. So you're going to go into a semi-faster state after that. Yes. So for people who are fat adapted, this is totally possible. It mm. wouldn't work someone with someone who's carb adapted because they can't handle a sudden spike and drop in glucose. Right. 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 But, but fat adapted people can because glucose is something we we're sensitive to. So once it comes up, we immediately take it in because we haven't had it for days and then it drops back down. It's buffered really fast because we've been around, we've been chilling at 70 to like 90 this entire keto diet. Like we're used to, we're used to that. That's not hypoglycemia. That's not hypoglycemia for us. That's just baseline for us right. now. Right. So what about yes. what, the only having, having a, Oh, sorry. Only, I, you cut out. Say that again. Yeah. I will say that the only kind of caveat that I may see is that, uh, you know, because you will spike the insulin, you will may also potentially cause like additional catabolism afterwards because you're going to break the fast state, so to say. Mm-hmm. That's that's the only thing that I may see that if you were to be if you were to stay completely fasted, then you will also uh, protect the muscle catabolism a lot, a lot more because uh, you're going to stay in deeper ketosis and autophagy versus if you break the fast with that insulin surge. And you're not consuming anything afterwards for the next day, then uh, the, it always maybe like I wouldn't I wouldn't see that it's the best optimal way of going about it. But yeah, if it if it works for you, then <laughs> it, it can be somewhat useful. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it's just it's just like another way of seeing like like because you know a lot of people in the past would have like you know post workout shakes and right. those were designed to probably if do I, similar things. Yeah, if I, if I were to have like some another additional post workout meal later then it will be pretty good because you will prime mm-hmm. your body to be able to uh you know use glucose and uh and uh shuttle and, and to raise insulin so if i were to spike my insulin after you know first of all like the the only and the best time you would want to spike insulin and raise blood sugar is after a workout uh, where mm-hmm. you would you know refill their glycogen and uh, if i were to spike it uh, with some some like really easily digestible glucose and fructose and uh, then, then I would simply kind of be cautious of that. I would have to w- want to have like an additional post-workout meal later as well, just to you know still yeah. uh, provide like the extra amino acids. Because if you spike your, you know, if you spike um, mTOR and insulin, but there's no protein and amino acids around, then your body will still you know want to build or re- that's what recover. the that's what the protein does that's what the proteins of the omega 3 do it provides okay. the body with a like i'm talking about small arm protein like you know mm. 3 ounces right y- your your body can still handle three, uh, can handle 3 ounces as a signal requirement to promote biogenesis and sure. and anabolism but the the fuel it's like it's like i'm giving you a short amount of fuel that you can use for like 1 2 hours and then it, you already stored up all the glycogen. So you get the benefits of stored glycogen. But then when it comes to like the metabolic factors, they're only temporarily put out of sync. Mm. Not to the, it's, yeah, so that's why I said it's, like, it's a temporary, right. it's like a partial fast benefit. So you, you lose a bit of the fasting benefits to gain more of the protein growth benefits, okay. which is like, which we, we do mostly through muscle stimulation. But over time, being on a keto diet and doing fasting, because I do alternate day fasting pretty much. Mm-hmm. Like I would fast Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and eat Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so doing that process, I realized my performance would decrease throughout the week. And like Monday is my best day. And I start you know, dipping Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. You know? So mm-hmm. when I did this, I realized it started to plateau. Like it's like my, my performance started to be like, it's always like the same type of performance. Okay. So it's just like things of looking at like, 
like not just of the benefits of autophagy. If you want just the benefits of autophagy, I'd say go full fasting. That's great. Mm -hmm. But for those who want to do uh, anabolism and still get the benefits of autophagy, there's a there's right. like a this is like a little life hack that we can do okay. to eat a very small amount for the sole purpose of refueling the body. Mm, yeah, it's it is interesting. It's all different. It's it's new. It's new. It's it's new. It's a little controversial. Yeah, different different methods of going. And, yeah, totally. You know, at at the same time, it's not gonna be. Uh, or the you know end end result is going to be determined by the overall balance between anabolism and metabolism over the course of the entire week, so to say. <laughs> so yeah. you can still you can still fast three days of the week continuously as long as the other days are really hi highly ana anabolic and you still still uh, stimulate mTOR enough. So <laughs> mm -hmm. you, you can you can do like some form of uh, longer fasts while at the same time having like some more. Uh, these anabolic foods on the days that you do eat so it's it's a method it's a method in doing it <laughs> that's true no I, I i did it too i used to do three-day fast five by four as a feeding and like everything was great so long as my first meal i broke it with was small that's mm -hmm. the only thing i had to be small the rest could have been bigger but like the right. first meal matters the most i think mm -hmm. yeah well yeah man it's uh it's been great talking with you and we will start to wrap this up is there anything else like you would like to mention about the paper that you wrote or that something that we didn't cover or something you want to emphasize more just just one like concluding thing would be when it comes to the studies on diets and when people are going to start refuting science mm -hmm. uh, keep in mind that a lot of the diets that they feed animals are not a diet have not, they've never adapted new diet trends mm -hmm. uh, even though the ones that say low carb they're not they're not what we now classify as a true low carb diet yeah. uh, so to people who want to read the paper like just make sure you check what the diet was that they ate and if they don't put it assume it's a typical normal what we call normal chow which mm -hmm. is like it's still a 45 i think 45 percent carbs like 30 you know 20 10 percent fat and the rest of protein mm -hmm. so just keep in mind that if if someone tells you like oh your keto diet like it's not good uh be like can i see the study and see if it actually was a keto diet because <laughs> most times it's not they haven't figured out how to do it yet for some reason yeah that, that's all that's what i'd say like you know be aware when it comes to scientific studies they're yeah. not always going to get the the point right yeah it's like high fat diets tend to be you know the regular chow plus some some form of corn oil or sunflower oil added into it <laughs> and yeah. it's like sugar and carbs yeah. and that's all together so like, that's that's classified as a high fat diet versus exactly. like uh you know it's completely different from what a, like a low carb keto diet is yeah like the, the the normal diet is mcdonald's the high fat diet is deep fried mcdonald's it's like yeah. they're both mcdonald's but one's worse yeah i agree yeah. <laughs> and, and also like the studies uh, one of the recent ones was that low carb diets increase mortality but uh, the low carb diet was it started at the point of 50% carbs. <laughs> yeah, so they, they, don't, they, don't, yeah, they don't have it. And that's mostly due to diet, who they're being funded by. It's mm -hmm. also just due to them not having a full grasp of what an actual low-carb diet is. So right. uh, I just hope those science, you know, I hope people in our generation, like the younger generation when it comes to science, they start applying these type of concepts because we do want science to back this up. I do want the facts to be in our favor because a lot of it is kind of like, you know, like, testimonial physiological but like not molecular yet mm. hasn't reached that level which usually is rare because usually goes from the bottom up we want to go top down and mm. get it back so sure. hopefully in the next few years <laughs> we'll see and yeah. uh yeah thanks for coming and uh before i ask my last question uh, where can people learn more about you and uh, your work so i don't i don't do too much social media yet i I'm, i might pick it up but for now i mean you can follow me like on, on linkedin like I, ha I have a linkedin uh 
to, that's more for like scientific dis, uh, discussions. But down the line, if I do have something open up, I'll I'll probably send it to you, Seem so you can probably you know retroactively yeah. put it in the post or something. For sure. Yeah, I'll yeah. I'll uh, I'll leave the link to the study, the paper you published also. Yes, please do. Yeah, that'd be great. But yeah, uh, my last question is: uh, What's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner that improved your body and your mind? Hmm. That that's a good question. Uh, I wish I had focused on intermittent fasting first before dieting. That would have made I wouldn't have suffered as long as I did because I went up and down, up and down all the time, like yo-yo dieting, basically. Had I had I realized that I don't have to eat breakfast all the time or at all, and I don't have to eat those snacks all the time, I, I would have been at the way I am, I am now, at like probably five years ago. So mm-hmm. intermittent fasting is the one that's definitely backed by science, hundred percent, like no question about it. So if you want to start any diet, just start with not eating breakfast. Just eat less. Just <laughs> eat less often a day, and then take it from there, dude. You can add your diets as as you go. That's the best yeah. one. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite uh, powerful, and it does fix like a lot of the uh, Trojan horses that we talk about in here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks for coming to the podcast, and looking forward to your future studies, and good luck with your PhD. Uh, Thank you so much, team. It was great talking to you as well, and best of luck with the show and everything. Okay. Thanks. I'll see you around. Hi. Alright, that's it for this episode of the Body, Mind and Apartment podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. You can now order my new book, Metabolic Autophagy, that covers a lot of the same topics that we talked in here. It's a collection of certain lifestyle habits and practices that prioritize longevity as well as performance. To support this podcast, you can also become a Patreon and get exclusive video lectures from my biohacking bootcamp that covers circadian rhythms, intermittent fasting, autophagy, resistance training, biofeedback, and many more. But other than that, my name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.